Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Hi, my name's Mark Creamer and welcome to this fifth episode in our series on trauma and mental health. In the last episode, we looked at the three treatments for PTSD and related conditions that have the largest body of research support. And you may remember that they come under the broad heading of trauma-focused psychological treatments. We talked about prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy and EMDR. In this episode, I want to move on and look at some of the possible treatments beyond trauma-focused psychological therapy. We're going to start off by looking at the role of medication and we'll go on to look at some alternative treatment options. To help me explore these issues, let me introduce our two guests for this episode. Neil Greenberg is Professor of Defence Mental Health at King's College London and for many years was a psychiatrist in the Royal Navy. Welcome, Neil. Thanks very much for joining us. Very welcome. Good to be here. Thanks, Mark. Professor Megan O'Donnell is Head of Research at Phoenix Australia Centre for Post-Traumatic Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thank you. If I can turn to you first, Neil, as I said, we talked in the last episode about trauma-focused psychological treatments, but presumably medication has an important part to play in PTSD and related conditions. So can we kick off with you giving us a bit of an overview, a bit of a riff on uh, pharmacological treatments for PTSD? Yeah, well, I think it's um, probably fair to start by saying that um, pharmacological treatments are not the first line treatments. I think you mentioned in your introduction, psychological talking therapies are where you're going to start in almost all cases. But pharmacological agents do have a role, uh, and I guess it's easy enough to split them into a couple of different ways. First of all, there's a few out there that have claimed to be preventative agents, so preventing people from developing PTSD. Um, There's some out there which treat, at least treat the symptoms. And then there's another group which seem to claim anyway to uh, help uh, make psychotherapy more effective. So in the prevention group, uh, the strongest evidence comes uh, from a medication called hydrocortisone, uh, which is a a steroid, a corticosteroid. And although the studies that have looked at that are pretty small in number, um, there does seem to be some evidence that people who get given hydrocortisone shortly after going through a traumatic event may be less likely to develop PTSD. Can I interrupt you there? Because you're talking about prevention. Um, We know that... that, um psychophysiological arousal at the time of the trauma is an important predictor. So in terms of prevention, what about other things that might bring down arousal, like, for example, beta blockers? Is there a place for them? Absolutely. So, so beta blockers, again, are another medication that's been claimed uh, to, to reduce arousal, therefore reduce the likelihood of PTSD, as indeed have opioids uh, as well. Um, and I have to say, though, when you look at the evidence for all three agents, hydrocortisone, beta blockers and opioids, Actually, it's not particularly fantastic. You know, we're not in a state yet where the paramedic at the side of the road is going to be delivering any one of these medications with the aim of reducing psychological trauma later on. But I think there are definitely areas uh, worthy of further research. Um, and, uh, and of course, if we could get a preventative agent, that would be fabulous. One important caveat here, just before we move on to sort of treatment agents, is, is about benzodiazepines. Now, benzodiazepines don't have a role for treatment, but also there is no role for them in prevention either. So we don't have any evidence um, that they're they're, they're useful. I think that's important because, you know, in the old days, the the doctor would give you a strong sedative and send you off to your bed. 
uh, you know, when you've been through trauma, and actually that's probably not such a good idea. And probably still used a bit in, uh, perhaps in primary care. Absolutely. And so um, I think both in the UK and I, I know in Australia that there, there is a strong, I think, feeling, dare I say, in primary care and perhaps some non-expert mental health professionals that giving a sedative is useful for PTSD when in fact they're actually contraindicated. It's not just not useful, it can actually do some harm. So I think that's a real strong message is whatever you do, don't be using benzos. Okay, so let's talk about treatment then once the person's got PTSD or something similar. What, what might drugs do there or what, what drugs might we use? Yeah, so the strongest evidence there is on antidepressants and uh, and particularly on the SSRIs, uh, serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors, but also the SNRIs, uh, such as a medication called venlafaxine. So in the UK, our, our national guidelines, the NICE guidelines, did a big review, which they always do, and we published our guidelines at the end of 2018, so they're reasonably up-to-date. And there was a big debate amongst the guidelines group about whether we should just say paroxetine, fluoxetine and vendafaxine, which are three particular drugs, or whether actually it was a class effect. And actually, although there's stronger evidence for one or the other, most of it relates to the fact that the studies haven't been done with all the other medications, so we can't really be sure. And the overall feeling from the NICE group was that actually SSRIs or SNRIs as a form of medication for PTSD, they were all kind of okay. And probably you could use any one of them, even though there is some stronger evidence for, for one or the other. Um, again, second line, so they're for people who don't want psychological therapies or aren't suitable for them, or people who've got a lot of comorbid depression, then these medications can be quite useful. You know, and in some people with the right dose, quite often the dose has to be a bit higher, they, they, they can make a really useful impact on symptoms. Um, but I, I wouldn't say they were curative or they weren't treating the, the condition uh, it's unlikely when you withdrew the antidepressant that people would, would, would you know, not have PTSD anymore. Sure. You, you were saying, therefore, um, perhaps people who don't want or can't get psychological treatment, but uh, am I right in saying that something like the SSRIs, this group of antidepressants, we can use at the same time as psychological treatment, whereas with the benzos we can't. P- people can be on an SSRI and be going through trauma-focused therapy? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think in many cases, if someone's got significant PTSD or a significant depression, actually, that may be well be a very good thing. Certainly in my experience, and I'm sure other clinicians will have their own, is that actually many people are quite sort of anti-medication. So trying to persuade them to take an antidepressant is sometimes more difficult. But they definitely do have a role. And as a second line treatment that they are absolutely, you know, well accepted and that the evidence is definitely there. Okay, so I interrupted you. You were going to go on and talk about uh, some other uh, classes of drugs, I think. Yeah, so the, the, the two other ones that are most commonly sort of quoted are, are low-dose antipsychotic medications, you know, tranquilizing medications. Uh, particularly, there's evidence with risperidone and also with quetiapine. Um, I think the, the UK guidance is that they should only be used by specialists. If you've got someone who's got psychotic symptoms and and PTSD, then actually they're, they're, they're pretty good. But even in people who haven't got psychotic symptoms, if they're very disturbed, really aroused, then actually these medications do have a role to play to bring the arousal down. And actually that might make them more able to engage in therapy and, and, and to, to particularly to control symptoms sometimes when you can't actually get on and treat the PTSD. Um, and the other medication that's commonly talked about in this group is also Prazosin, um, which is, you know, a medication for, for blood pressure. But um can have helpful effects on uh, on nightmares. 
do you, do you know it's a it's a funny medication because there's some people who absolutely advocate and say it's amazing and you know they, they commonly prescribe it and there's others who say it's not particularly good you know when we looked at the evidence overall I, we didn't in the uk file enough evidence to say we should recommend it but certainly as in especially hands of a specialist where you've got someone with bad nightmares um i think processing might have a role yeah exactly so even though i i take your point that the research is equivocal perhaps if you're, you know, it, I guess it does when you're thinking about prescribing. So I'm going to ask this question actually: How do you decide for each patient? Which, to a certain extent, it's going to be your clinical judgment, and perhaps even suck it and see. And if it doesn't work, maybe we try something else. Would that be right? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope we wouldn't just start with suck it and see. Yeah. But but I think, I, but but I, I take your point. It, it is absolutely trying to match what you have in your medication toolbox to the patient in front of you, and also what the patient's willing to accept. Because although, for instance, antipsychotics in low dose can be really useful for arousal, they can also be quite sedating. So, you know, so there's, there's some side effects there and, and there isn't a medication out there that unfortunately has no side effects. So it, it is a balancing act. Exactly. And, th- and that, that, that particular class of the, we, we call them the atypical psychotic, antipsychotics, don't we? But um, yes, p- people, again, often don't like taking them because of that sedative effect, don't they? Is that right? They, they find they feel, yeah... Numb and but, but but there's other people again perhaps people who've got more complex or more chronic PTSD that hasn't responded well to talking therapy where if you're looking about living with some of the symptoms they can make a really useful uh, part of a, of a comprehensive care plan and um, yeah and just saying there's one last group um, of uh, ones which are you know again said to potentially help make psychotherapy more effective and there's kind of two contenders in this group you know the, the one that I think it's probably got the strongest evidence is MDMA, which, as we know, is a you know a, a medication used by people uh, outside of the, uh, the, the 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 sort of the, the doctor's surgery uh, quite regularly. So, just to be clear, we're, we're talking effectively ecstasy here. Ecstasy, absolutely, yeah. To use its uh, more street name, yep. Um, and um, and that medication, th- there is actually reasonable evidence, and there's also a number of good trials going on in different places around the world, certainly in Cardiff and Wales. Uh, I know the Netherlands, I'm not sure about Australia, lots done in the, America, looking uh, to see whether um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is more effective. That's right. And in fact, sorry to interrupt, but um, Barbara Barbara Rothbaum was talking about this briefly in the last episode. But And I guess I just make the point or emphasise the point that we're talking here, are we not, about using, in this case, ecstasy to assist psychotherapy, not as a standalone, just take ecstasy and your PTSD will be cured. Absolutely. It's a really important point, which I, I try and uh, tell the media professionals who talk to me quite a lot. MDMA does not treat PTSD. MDMA may make psychotherapy for more difficult to treat PTSD more effective. Okay. And, and yeah, and on that same piece, and again, you've spoken to Barbara, uh, D-cycloserine is the other medication which is meant to facilitate learning. And again, there are some suggestions that if you do psychotherapy whilst giving D-cycloserine, it can make things more effective. Um, I think the evidence there, again, is really quite equivocal and we're not yet at a point where we can say, you know, either one of these two medications are going to make psychotherapy more effective. But they're certainly good targets for more research. Sure, absolutely. Maybe the way of the future. The other thing I think, thinking about the way of the future, that... As you say, you know, our, our SSRIs, our SNRIs were developed for depression first and foremost, they're antidepressants, and then our atypical antipsychotics for psychosis and so on. The reality is we don't have a PTSD-specific drug at this point, do we? 
No, we don't. And actually, I've been involved in a couple of with a couple of groups who have come up with some really sort of interesting uh, drugs based upon sort of GABA, you know, um, and other neurotransmitters, and also some based upon the immune response as well. Because there's there's a, there is a kind of theory about the links between the uh, immune immune system and developing PTSD, which appear to be more specific. But again, we're a long way from any of those medications coming to the market in a way that we can, I think, trial them well or, or certainly prescribe them to complex cases yeah great okay so let's talk a bit more about alternative treatments then and if i could turn to you megan i guess i'm I'm thinking that there's increasing evidence around some alternative approaches in ptsd and, and related conditions i'm thinking of things perhaps like mindfulness or act acceptance commitment therapy i'm even thinking of the sort of more physical approaches like yoga and acupuncture so uh, again i wonder if you could just give us a bit of a riff or talk briefly about whether we've got evidence for these kinds of approaches yeah look um i think i might start where neil started and that's in saying that first line treatments are our talking treatments which mark you've discussed in other podcasts and so we'd always start with those treatments but there are some emerging treatments that i think are worth talking about the best place to find out what treatments have an emerging evidence base is um, using treatment guidelines. And the Australian PTSD treatment guidelines have just been updated. Um, and you can find those on the Phoenix Australia website. And I think that's a really useful place to start if anyone has any questions about evidence for particular treatments i agree i think it's an excellent idea and, and i'd also refer back to what neil was saying about the uk nice guidelines the national institute for clinical excellence also another set of great guidelines but yeah i quite agree the, the australian guidelines yeah and we'll put links to all three of those guidelines on the mhpn website next to this uh, podcast episode uh they're all free to download so i'd encourage you to have a look at them Yes. So, look, I think let's start with mindfulness and meditation. Um, we know this has a reasonably good uh, evidence base for depression and anxiety disorders. In PTSD, uh, there's probably not enough studies for us to say it's uh, a leading um, treatment intervention. There's emerging evidence to say that it's quite useful. Often the studies in, in these areas are not very uh, high quality, and I think that's where we're lacking a good evidence base. But we would say there's probably an emerging evidence base around mindfulness and meditation. There was a particularly good uh, randomised control study looking at TIA medication, uh, TIA meditation uh, with PTSD, and that showed an equivalence with one of our first-line treatments, prolonged exposure. So we would say that, you know, once we start seeing really well-controlled studies, we probably will get more of an evidence base in this area. You know, along with meditation, I think yoga is getting an emerging evidence base. Still not a first-line treatment, but um, we certainly need to do more research in that area, but it's a promising area. Uh, And acupuncture is another one where there is an emerging evidence base. Um, so we do need better control studies, but it's looking it's looking quite promising. Yeah, 
And we won't go into it now, but it does raise questions about the mechanisms involved, doesn't it? And how come we've got all these quite diverse approaches that seem to be doing something? But Yeah, well, you know, one of the ones I really like to talk about is exercise. And I think here we've got a really lovely mechanism of why exercise might be useful. And that is that BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is a neurotransmitter, that actually increases when you exercise and we know that bdnf is really useful for fear extinction learning and all at the moment our trauma focused treatments all use fear extinction learning as a mechanism for treating ptsd so there's a couple of trials happening there's one happening um, that uh, kim felmingham is leading in australia and we're involved with that too where we're looking at whether if you put Uh, exercise in front of prolonged exposure, whether you get a better treatment effect because you're prepping the body to actually extinguish the memory um, around the trauma. So that's a really useful area. Absolutely. And I I guess probably um, there's more and more evidence that exercise is good for mental health across the board, isn't it? You know, that we know it helps in depression. We know it helps really for, for all sorts of things. So everybody get out there and get your aerobic exercise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, neurofeedback's another one that's got an emerging evidence base. Again, the studies are not very strong in this area, but certainly probably worth uh, looking at. And this is where you use uh, EEG or um, or some kind of um, brain um, imaging processes to help the individual learn to regulate their brain activity and that kind of biofeedback is can be useful. But again, um, there's some systematic, a recent systematic review showed that there's an emerging evidence base around it and we definitely need some more studies. Yeah, sure. So all sorts of interesting thing hap- things happening. And I know that you're involved in looking at a couple of innovative treatments yourself. Can you just uh, take us briefly through perhaps one of those? Or? Yeah, so I'm really interested in, at the moment, all of our leading uh, first-line treatments for PTSD, you focus on the trauma. So they're called trauma-focused treatments, and you would hear about those in the other podcasts that Mark has done. I'm really interested in whether we can treat PTSD by not focusing in on the trauma specifically. So are there other ways of accessing and um, improving PTSD symptoms without focusing on that trauma memory. And the reason um, that I'm interested in that is that often people are very anxious and um, don't want to focus on the trauma memory. They find it quite aversive. And so that often prevents people from actually engaging in the treatment. Um, So if we can have some other treatments that are a bit more acceptable, then maybe we can uh, improve or decrease some of the barriers to treatment. So I'm really interested in um, transdiagnostic interventions. So these are targeting often emotion regulation processes. So helping people when they feel these strong emotions associated with PTSD, are there ways that they can downregulate those emotions? And so teaching emotions regulation skills, um, in t- teaching um, you can teach those in a number of different ways. One of the the treatments that I'm particularly interested in is one called the United um, 
protocol. And this is one where we look at emotional learning, emotion regulation, training, um, increasing skills. And what we found, we've just published a very um, small trial looking at specifically at PTSD. And you can see that the PTSD symptoms drop as a result of uh, just increasing someone's emotion regulation skills. The thing I really like about this is that the intrusive memories uh, also drop. And so it seems to be that, that even though we're targeting emotion regulations, we're not necessarily targeting the trauma memory, we get a reduction in these symptoms. So there's, uh, that's really, really promising. Quite agree. I think it is very promising. It's really interesting stuff. Although I should say that for the benefit of the listener, it's almost blasphemous to say that we can treat trauma PTSD without focusing on the trauma, you know, because we've been hammering that message for so long. But it's very interesting, your point, that even if you're not focusing on it, actually the memories may be modified. So... Yeah, Yeah, and there's different ways to skin a cat. Are we allowed to say that scientifically? I think there's different mechanisms that we can target that lead to the same end. And so I think it's, you know, and when we think about these emerging evidences, uh, these emerging interventions, uh, they are targeting different mechanisms. And so I, I think that's really useful to be able to give people a range of different types of interventions to in improve PTSD outcomes. I was talking to Neil, uh, well, we, we, Neil and I were talking a minute ago about um, combining perhaps drugs with psychological treatments. It, c- can we kind of load these psychological treatments up on top of each other? Can we do prolonged exposure plus mindfulness plus whatever? Yeah, so this is known as augmentation, isn't it? So where you add one intervention to another to see if you get Uh, more improvements than just a standalone intervention. Look, it seems to be, we've just done a systematic review in this, and it seems to be that if you add one first-line intervention to another, you don't get an additive effect. Or if you add um, an intervention that's targeting the same mechanism, so one fear extinction learning intervention with another fear extinction learning, uh, you don't get it. an effect. It seems to be there's a ceiling effect. But what we have seen is if you target another mechanism, that looks promising. So a really nice one is it seemed to be that if you target the, uh, an individual's ability to increase capacity to absorb information. So you, um, we, we know that PTSD is associated with poor concentration, poor memory. And if you target those areas, you do get an additive effect. So this is why we think that um, transcranial magnetic stimulation might be a useful mechanism here because you're kind of increasing someone's ability to absorb information which preps them for actually going into a talking treatment. And we are seeing emerging uh, evidence to suggest that this could be useful. Mm, mm. So that's people may have heard of TMS. And so, yeah, we've got some studies, haven't we, of TMS with CPT, which we were talking about last time, cognitive processing therapy. Okay, good, good, good. Um, let me go on then and, and take it kind of one step further, as it were. And I'd really like you both to comment on this, but I'll start with you, Neil. Um, the, 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 there's a there's another level of strategies that I think would be hard to conceptualise as treatment in any kind of formal way, but they're still quite widely endorsed. And I'm thinking of things like 
pets, service dogs or therapy dogs kind of thing. I'm thinking of things like outward bound courses and long treks through the bush and things like that. Um, so what do you think? You know, it's, have they got a place at all in the treatment of uh, post-traumatic stress and so on? So I, I think we're going to start off by saying these are not a, a place where we would recommend them as a first-line treatment. That's That's the first thing to say. But there are a number of people who don't respond well to first-line treatments. So they have their trauma-focused therapy. They maybe have another therapy. They have some medication. And they're still left with some pretty reasonable impairment. So I think once you get to the position of saying, okay, I'm, I'm not thinking that in the next three months we're going to get to remission of your symptoms, and you tried a few, lots of the more standard approaches, some of these perhaps more esoteric uh, activities I think do have a place. Uh, and certainly in terms of symptom reduction and sort of living with your difficulties, um, they're quite important. We also know, don't we, that a number of people who have PTSD over time improve anyway. And uh, they improve, and, you know, we're not yet clear what it is that gets people uh, better without any intervention. But actually some of these activities may well be things that people are doing where they're finding you know, new directions and new meaning in their lives. Um, and think pets and animals and the outdoors um, may be part of that. Another way of thinking about it also, and this is uh, to, to use my, my uh, career in the Navy, is to think about platform and ordnance. So like, a warship is not, is not a weapon system, but it's a great place to put lots of weapon systems on. But also, if you've got an outdoor activity or, or pets or those sort of things, and you get people into a good state where, where people are more receptive, it may well be that actually at that point, um, that actually the, the standard therapies might be more effective. So certainly in the UK, there's a number of particularly veterans charities who um, who are um, very keen to use things like surfing and you know horse riding as treatments for PTSD. And I think what um, what what we found is actually you know that's not really going to help. But actually, when people have been horse riding or surfing or what have you, and then they have their therapy afterwards at least anecdotally, which is a terribly unscientific way of looking at anything, I know, um, people seem more receptive to, to, to sort of engage with more standard treatments. So, I th- I, so yeah, I think that's a, a useful way of, of seeing these things. And we shouldn't, as we sometimes do, get into a battle of saying, well, unfortunately, swimming with dolphins is very nice, but it's not going to get you better because, um, you know, people like swimming with dolphins. Absolutely. And, and these are really complex disorders often we're looking at, and we may well have to have complex kind of pathways to treatment just for the benefit of people um you may have it was ironic talking about dogs there you may have heard that megan's dog was barking in the background there it's all part of recording live yeah she's making a claim for uh dogs being good for your mental health i think that was her her point look i totally agree with neil that focusing in on someone's well-being uh is useful for their mental health and so dogs um, I think exercise, diet, all these things are good for your well-being that helps your mental health and that ultimately is useful for PTSD symptoms. It doesn't mean that that's the only treatment that you do and we always recommend first-line treatments. But for those, especially people with resistance, treatment resistance, um, alternate approaches can be very useful. I used to have a, uh, one of my clinical mentors way, way back in the distant past. He used to say that uh, it's very easy to make someone feel better. It's very difficult to make someone get better. And I think sometimes we're a bit dismissed about this idea of helping someone to feel better. Actually, that's pretty important. Yeah, and I think those maintenance models are really useful. So it might be that someone's going to have persistent symptoms
dogs for the rest of their life? And can we actually, like a service dog might be very useful in these situations. If it helps them engage in life, they can get to the shopping centre, they can actually do things they couldn't actually do before. I think that's really, really useful. So Absolutely. there's a role. Definitely Absolutely. Role. Can I just jump in? The, the thing, and I completely agree, you know, we're singing off the same song sheet. The danger of these therapies, I think, isn't that the therapy themselves is likely to necessarily cause harm, but certainly in the, uh, certainly in the UK, there is a lot of these therapeutic providers who provide these esoteric therapies will do it tomorrow. Whereas if you're going for a mainline standard treatment, that's going to take two, three months before you get there. And you've got someone who's desperate for some intervention. And what happens is they're going to treat the thing tomorrow over the thing they have to wait a few months. And if the thing tomorrow doesn't work because the dogs were nice, but I didn't get better, you then get to this state of sort of therapeutic nihilism that I can't be helped. And so then you get into this really unhelpful situation where people can have a chronic condition that could have been treated. So I think, like Megan says, we have to work together with these different groups and not trying to say, you know, you're wrong and we're right. Otherwise, we're not going to help the people with the problems. Absolutely. But we also perhaps need to gently modify some of the expectations that some of the proponents might put on it, that this is a fantastic cure for PTSD. When you say, well, no, the, the data don't say that. That's not... Yeah. yeah, but also I think we need research. So there, there's a particularly nice study that was published in a, in a high-impact journal um, looking at service dogs. And, um, you know, it did show that relative to usual care, service dogs uh, improve PTSD symptoms. You know, I think that we just need better research too to work out when when uh, it's useful to have these alternate treatments um yeah, so it's, I think it's not just about uh, making people feel better. We also need to make sure we have research to support this. Yeah, no, I agree entirely, I agree entirely, which leads me nicely on to the next thing I wanted to ask you is actually the final part of our discussion today, which is about people like us, in inverted commas, uh, are often asked to provide advice about which treatments should or shouldn't be funded, for example, by government or by uh, third-party insurers or whatever. So I'm wondering what, what kinds of criteria you would be looking for when you make that decision, when you provide that advice. And either of you want to jump in first then? The first thing is, has the person tried evidence-based treatments? Uh, and if there's evidence of treatment resistance, I would be asking, uh, is there harm associated with this alternate intervention uh, if, um, or this new intervention? Uh, if it looks like there's no harm and it looks like uh, we might be able to improve someone's well-being, then... Um, and, there's, and, and we feel that focusing on their well-being being is useful, then I, I think that we could think about um, f- funding a particular intervention. But there, it has to be a sequence that you go through. You really want to know that this person has tried um, at least one or two evidence-based treatments. Yeah, it's an important point. Any, anything you'd add there, Neil? Well, I'd agree with that. So in the, in the, in the UK, we, we, because we have so many of these veteran charities, we came up with what we called um, safe and ethical practice guidelines, which is very different to evidence-based treatment guidelines. But what we want is that the organisation providing these kind of esoteric therapies to at least not try and say, oh, you mustn't go and get anything else because we've got it right. They must do risk assessment. They must have basic clinical skills. They must keep the, the family doctor, the general practitioner, informed of what's going on. And so if they play nicely, so to speak, and we, as, as Megan said, you know, we've tried 
all our standard treatments, I think absolutely let, let's let's support that in, in an, on an individual case basis. But I do think that if people do make a gradual recovery, I don't think we should ever get away from the fact is that a three or four years later, another course of evidence-based therapy, when they're in a better place to be receptive of it, perhaps may make a difference when it didn't before. And the other thing to add into it is also this idea about work. I don't think we speak about work enough because what often happens is if you got your PTSD in an occupational setting, you then kind of get um, sort of pensioned off for, for until you're 67 or what have you. And I don't I think that's very useful, even though it's nice to have the money. So I, I, th- I think that the key point of the care coordinator um, is obviously to make sure the dog's there, um, but is, uh, is, to, is to make sure that actually people's holistic care is, is looked at, not, not just they enjoy going surfing, swimming or whatever else they're doing with dogs or or animals. I think that point that you made at the end there, Neil, is about work is really important. I agree entirely that we don't spend nearly enough time talking about work and the importance of work or the importance of having meaningful activities in your day and so on and, and how important that is just for mental health and, and recovery. Yeah, well, perhaps one piece I would say on that is that so we've got a few studies looking, uh, again, this is in veterans who have had treatment for various mental health problems, including PTSD. And actually what we often see is before their PTSD symptoms get a lot better, actually their functionality improves. So we use the work and social adjustment scale as one measure. And actually they become more functional. Once they become more functional and then their self-esteem improves, actually they're much more able to you know, engage with their therapy. So I, I think these, these nice-to-have esoteric bits, which work, I would say, is, is a key part of, I think we shouldn't just see, you know, we need to treat just your symptoms. We need, we need, to, need to treat the whole person, which, as you say, includes meaningful activities, ideally including work. Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps giving more thought to whether someone is at the best place to start evidence-based treatment, whether there's some pre-stuff that we should be doing to stabilise them, to improve functioning, to improve their emotion regulation, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's clear that um, for some people, at least, medication is uh, an important addition to trauma-focused treatment for PTSD, and in some cases may be used instead of uh, a a psychological kind of treatment. We know that there are several other approaches that uh, seem to be helpful to some people some of the time. And I I think that this highlights a point that both um, Megan and Neil have made, I think, the importance of tailoring treatment to the individual. We we really don't have treatments that we think that we know are going to work for everybody. So if the first-line treatment doesn't seem to be very effective, we need to, to, to be comfortable branching out a little bit. Equally, I think that both uh, Megan and Neil made the very important point that we have a a responsibility to ensure that people with PTSD and related conditions are offered a therapeutic dose of a first-line evidence-based treatment with medication, of course, if that's appropriate. Um, so, so we really do have a, an ethical obligation, I think, to ensure that people have access to these treatments. But that does not mean that they can't be offered other interventions and support, maybe concurrently with the main treatment or an, uh, an, uh, as an adjunct, or perhaps even subsequently, uh, especially if, uh, as we were saying, if there are residual, street, uh, residual symptoms, they perhaps haven't responded uh, especially well to treatment. In our next episode, which is the final one in this series, we're going to be talking to more experts, but this time we're going to be talking to experts by experience. We're talking to three people who've experienced very different types of traumatic event, and they'll be talking to us about their recovery. I'm looking forward to that one enormously, but for now, thank you very much again to Neil Greenberg and Megan O'Donnell. Thank you, it was a pleasure. Pleasure's mine too. 
And don't forget that uh, wherever you got your podcast, you should find a link to a survey which will enable you to give us some feedback, not only about these episodes that you've been listening to, but also ideas for what you'd like to hear in terms of future podcasts around mental health. I'm Mark Creamer, and I hope that you'll join me for the next episode in our podcast series on trauma and mental health. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 